Hey everybody, it's Dr. Doug Birch and you're listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. So I did a tweet the other day. Yes, that's what you do with tweets, you do them. And uh, I had more responses to this tweet than I've had, I don't know, to many of my tweets in the last year. It was all about the difference between megachurches and large churches and small churches or normal-sized churches. I think I really struck a nerve. On today's Fairly Spiritual Show, I'm going to talk about how we often undervalue normal-sized churches in the way we platform megachurch pastors. Welcome to the Fairly Spiritual Show. I'm so glad you could join me. I'm Dr. Doug Birch, and uh, I pastored, last 22 years, I've pastored a normal-sized church that's never been above 200. I say normal-sized in this, that the majority of churches, I think the last study I looked at is 90% of churches have 200 people or less. In fact, or is it 200 people or fewer? Hmm, grammarians, uh, text me the answer. But uh, regardless, most churches uh, don't have over 200 people. In fact, a large percentage of churches just have 40, 50, or 60 people. And when I say just have, there's almost an implication there that says they're doing something wrong. Here's the reality. The majority of pastors pastor churches that will never get over 200. Now, some are trying to get over 200, others aren't, but regardless, the vast majority of churches in America are less than 200. I'm just going to talk about the American church, although I think some of these trends you see in the church throughout the world, or at least in certain areas of the world, particularly Europe. The reality is uh, we have a church growth movement or culture that has promoted a healthy church is a growing church. And right off the bat, I want to tell you what I'm going to do in today's show. Uh, First, today's show is not going to be about knocking larger expressions. I'm not one of those people who says we have to stab someone else in the back to make room for our expression. I don't have to attack a large church in order to make a small church uh, look good. The reality is, is there are pastors in every sized church, in mega churches, in larger churches, in medium-sized, small churches, whatever size whether they're a Papa Bear Church, Mama Bear Church, Baby Bear Church, it doesn't matter. Whatever size they are, there are pastors doing amazing work. By the way, there are also pastors doing terrible work in churches regardless of their size. So there's no virtue to having a small church or a large church. In fact, what I want to talk about today is how we have made a virtue out of the sizes of our churches that simply isn't biblical. But you hear this saying sometimes, a healthy church is a growing church. And the idea is, you know, healthy organisms grow. Well, here's the reality of that saying. A healthy church might be a growing church, but a healthy cancer is a growing cancer. A healthy fire is a growing fire. Now, are we talking about the fire of Pentecost or a fire that destroys a whole uh, forest? The reality is just because something is growing it does not mean that it's healthy. All it means is it's growing. A crowd just means a crowd. 
A crowd that grows in numbers just means that that crowd is growing in numbers. There is no corollary. And let me say this as clear as I can. There's no corollary or correlation between a large church uh, and health. And all of us have examples of that. The fact that I have to say this is a little ridiculous, but the reason I'm saying it is we live in a culture that implies, and not just in our culture, but in our church leadership, often in our denominational leadership, it implies that a larger church is somehow just supposed to be respected more. That pastors of larger churches, their voices matter a little bit more. Their opinions, they're a little bit more wise. We, we you know, need to hear these men and women. I put women in there, but primarily it's often men of larger churches that we promote. But there's something in our culture that says, uh, if you have a large church, you've done it right. And conversely, if you have a small church, you must have done something wrong, and you need these large church pastors to show you how to do this. Now, I uh, sent out a tweet the other day, and man, oh man, did I get responses to it. And you know, I got about um, you know, a little over nine thousand followers, and uh, so I don't, you know, some tweets I'll send them out, and a couple people will respond, and that's great. But in this one, I I've had, and it's still, you know, almost, you know almost 2,000 people favoriting it, 150 people retweeting a bunch of pastors. I think up to now, like 117 pastors responding. They weren't all pastors, but a vast majority were responding, and this resonating with their heart. It wasn't one of those where everyone's upset at me, which those happened as well. But this one seems to be trending because I'm touching on a nerve uh, that really is impacting the local church and impacting the majority of pastors pastor. So here's the tweet. I wrote, I don't understand the conference pattern of having pastors of large churches consistently speak to rooms full of people who pastor smaller churches. There is such a condescending premise in this well-worn practice. So there's my thought, right? And the reason I brought this thought out, and I was thinking about it from a denominational point of view, and again, I don't think for instance, the denomination I serve, I think people are well-intentioned. I don't think they're sitting there going, how can we discourage people? But there are habits and patterns that uh, churches, denominations, conferences have adopted that I don't necessarily think are biblical. Or maybe that's too strong of a word. Maybe I would just say they're not helpful. And one of the habits is that we pick pastors of the largest church in the region. Denominationally, some of you might have denominations like this. They even host uh, you know, the, the district conference at the largest church, and then the pastor of the largest church speaks to us, and then another pastor of a large expression speaks to us. If you go up the denominational line, you find that people in positions of authority who are making the decisions for the denomination, who are on the committees, often many of them come from the largest expressions. I think there's something fundamentally wrong with that. And particularly, it's annoying when you hear the same people over and over again. I, I'm, I'm in a denomination where there's a lot of pastors. Uh, certainly, there's room for other voices. But when you hear the same person of the large church speak over and over again, what is implied is clear. What is implied is this person is doing it better. This person has more of a right to be heard. This is what we want you to become. 
What is platformed is what is valued. And again, I'm talking about in a denominational setting. I, you know, I get the idea in conferences, we platform the large church pastors and the mega church pastors. And some people say we do that because you got to have a name for people to pay for registration. And I get that. And, and I guess we're all to blame if we only go to a conference if it's led by a pastor of a large church. But in a denominational context, I go because it's part of our bylaws. I don't go based on who the speakers are. But the reality is, I've been pastoring for 22 years, and I've seen this pattern over and over again. I've seen pastors of the largest expressions platformed over and over again. And in fact, I've seen some amazing pastors of large churches platform, but I've also seen people who don't have high character, who in fact, their ministries fizzled out. They're not even a part of our denomination anymore. They were just kind of in it for themselves. They don't have good fruit when it comes to their own pastoral staff. They don't have good fruit in how they relate to other pastors within the denomination they serve, but they were platformed again and again because they had the largest churches. Now, sadly, sometimes that's an issue of money as well. The largest churches give the most money to the denomination, and there's this political appeasement that occurs that no one wants to talk about, but there's a reality to that. The leveraging of, hey, if you don't give us room, we're just going to leave this denomination. And so you see all those dynamics. Now, those dynamics might all be at the subconscious level. They might not be spoken but there is a reason that for some reason, no matter how long I've been in, in my denominational circle, the repeated pattern of giving voice and platform and decision-making capabilities to the largest churches and the pastors of the largest churches, it says something about what we value and what we don't value. Now, why is this so important? Again, I don't have anything against large churches and pastors of large churches being represented but the problem with this is the majority of pastors do not pastor large churches. As I said before, the vast majority, 90% of pastor churches of 200 people or less. There is something incredibly incongruous of having people lead conferences and workshops who pastor in a context that is not remotely like the context of the people they're leading. Now, I know I'll hear this as pastors of large churches will go, I once pastored a church like yours, and so I know what it's like. And I would like to say, no, you don't, because there's a difference between a season of pastoring a small church. There's a difference between you're going to be pastoring a small church your whole life. There's a difference between 22 years pastoring less than 200 people and a season where you pastored 100 people, and now you pastor 500 or 10,000. Whether we like it or not, people who've existed in certain areas begin to just see the world through that area. They forget what it was like to be in the position they used to be in. They forget it. One of the biggest issues with megachurches, and, and I'll just say this, I've seen this with almost every megachurch that I've partnered with, is megachurches tend to see themselves as their own denomination. They tend to see that they have the strength to do it themselves, and often this kind of idea that we do it better. They have their own programs, they have their own ministry centers, they have their own you know, internships. It's kind of like, we've got this figured out, we know what to do. And larger churches in a denominational context generally just want to be left alone. You'll see this, they're the ones who say, hey, I don't want to send money to the denomination, let us keep our money. They're the ones who say, just you know, stay out of our business and release us to do what we want to do. They're in general not collaborators. And it's the nature of the people who lead large churches is often they're not in it for the collaboration. It's just the nature of those kinds of churches. 
Now, if you're in a smaller church or a normal-sized church, there's many things you can't do on your own and you don't want to do on your own. You're looking for collaboration. Here's a perfect example, church planting. Larger churches, they got their system. And their system might be, you know, we've got satellite churches and we raise up people from our ministry center and then we put them out on a satellite thing and we give them all the equipment and they follow the the program and it's all set in motion. And again, that's fine that everyone agrees with that. But that kind of view of the church is not going to help other churches. Sometimes they're like this. They're like, hey, you can join us in what we're doing. But there's a condescension in even that. It's like, we know how to do it. We've got the right people. If you want to come and learn to do what we're doing, then you can do what we're doing. But that's not what pastors are looking for who pastor churches of 200 or less. And I know some of you, this is true, whether it's 300 or 400 or 500, but I'm just using these terms. For us, when it comes to church planting, there's a lot of churches that should not plant their own church. It'll destroy that church. But they're excited about joining other pastors and other churches and collaboratively planting a church. Yet often, at a denominational level, if all your leaders are of big churches and large churches, they don't think about collaboration. They just think about keep you know, the denomination out of it or keep the structure out of it. Uh, we don't need you to facilitate things. We just need you to leave people alone. I've seen this, this, this concept of church planting happen in the last 20 years where a large church says, we planted a lot of churches. They'll platform them. They stand up there and they talk about all the churches they planted. And then they say, and you need to do what we're doing. And so you need to commit that you'll plant a church. And I've seen smaller churches feel the weight of that and think, oh, you know, we need to be doing what that mega church is doing. And so they try to plant a church when they only have 100 people. And what happens is the church they planted barely survived or died. And because they did that, they barely survived or died. And it's not because they didn't have enough faith. And it's not because they did it wrong. It's because the nature of numbers and the foolishness to impose upon a church of 100 people the same expectations of a church of 1,000. Or to impose upon a leader a different vision than the vision that someone else has. Just to bring another vision to say, if you're truly going to be a leader, this is the vision you're supposed to have. That's sin. That's wrong. But that's what happens when we continually platform models and expressions that are megachurch-centered. I've seen pastors under the weight, like, you know, I just need to be doing better, and if I was doing better, I'd be like that platform church. And this is what I want to get at. One of the biggest problems with continually platforming and giving positions of leadership and power to megachurch or large church pastors is we're telling the majority of the church that they're doing it wrong. When you look at the majority of the congregation, the majority of the pastors in that conference, the majority are not pastoring those large churches. And what we're saying is, you know, if everyone was doing it like this large expression, then the kingdom of God would be advancing. But you're not, which means you're doing it wrong. And so we're going to platform another exception to the rule to encourage you to do what you should be doing, which is to grow. And in the last 10 years and 20 years, this has been even worse because, as you know, the American church has been declining or plateauing, depending upon the denomination. And so the statistics repeatedly show that things are not going well. And when the statistics clearly show that the church is declining, what do they do? Well, let's find the exception to the rule, and let's use that to judge everyone else in the room. Now, here's my personal belief. Uh, I have lots of beliefs on why the church is declining. In fact, I wrote a book called The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. And there's lots of cultural reasons why gathering together is declining. But I'm going to say this. 
as strong as I can. The church is declining not because pastors are just worse today than they were 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. I'm not going to buy into that dialogue that just says, you know, the reason the church is declining, that every pastor in the room or 80% of the pastors in the room or 95% of the pastors in the room or 90% who have churches of 200 or less, they're just not as good as those in the past. They're just not as dedicated. They're just not as honorable. They just don't have as much character. They're just not doing it right. I'm not going to buy into that lie because it's not true. And in fact, I would notice in my denominational setting that when I got around people my age or younger, in many ways, I appreciated their character even more so than some of the older people. I respected the older people, but I found less legalism in the younger people. I found less arrogance in some of the younger people. Not always, but often. And when I just looked at their character, I thought, these, these men and women don't have any less character than the people before them. And in fact, in many ways, they have a profoundly powerful character because they are pastoring in fields where they're not growing. They're pastoring in bivocational realities where they don't have enough money to feed their family, yet they're faithfully serving the Lord. They're pastoring season after season after season where they're not seeing the growth that others desire of them, but they're doing it anyway, even though their church is only 100 or 70 or 60, even though they'll never be platformed, even though they'll never be praised, even though they'll never be given a position of power or authority or even voice within their denominational context, they are faithfully serving the Lord. That, to me, is someone of tremendous character. And yet we have it so turned upside down, we look at those people as the problem. And it becomes cumulative, uh, conference after conference, book after book, again and again and again, constantly saying, you're not good enough. As you can see, this is an important issue to me. And I, I know by talking about it, some people will judge me. They'll believe that I'm bitter or I'm jealous. Hear me clearly. I value and respect greatly pastors who are pastoring large church expressions. It is not my job, it's not my right to judge their work. But I am judging this. I'm judging the fact that we are platforming pastors of larger churches purely or primarily based on the size of their church, not the character and the quality of the individual. Again, they might have quality, they might have character, but I've found no correlation between the size of someone's church and the character and integrity of their faith. I used to do a radio show where I, I had the privilege of interviewing hundreds and hundreds of pastors and pastors of all sorts of sized churches. And I'll tell you, there is no correlation between the ethical, moral, spiritual life of an individual and the size of their church. This garbage that says, you know, the church will only grow to the size of your character. That's garbage. I've seen men with terrible character with large churches. I've interviewed men with terrible character who pastor some of the largest churches in the U.S. And I've, been, and I've interviewed men of tremendous character uh, with large churches who've actually become my friends. But the reality that we do this, and you see this, well, you know, he might be kind of a jerk and he might be kind of arrogant, and sure, he keeps blowing up his staff, and 
there's many people have been hurt by him and he's he's constantly threatening the denomination that he's going to leave but you know his church is growing and well you know you just got to take the good with the bad and so let's platform him let's let him speak at the national conference or convention the fact that we do that is a satanic foothold it's a satanic foothold there's no way around it someone who can you can list all the things where they're harming people and hurting people and not expressing Christ-like character, but we're like, well, you know, as long as they've got a growing church. And frankly, isn't that the issue in America right now? It doesn't matter how many people call themselves Christians. If they don't have the character of Christ, then all that does is make the name of Christ look terrible. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the size of their church. It doesn't matter how many books they've written. It doesn't matter how many people praise them or whether they're on the president's advisory council. If they're people who do not have character, who do not have the fruit of the Spirit, who do not look like Christ, they should not be platformed. But we make these compromises all the time. All the time. We just say, well, you know, I know they got all these problems, but they got a large church, so let's platform them. Now, that would be okay if we made the same kinds of allowances for pastors of smaller churches. But we don't. The size of their church limits everything. Why would you give that person a platform? They're just a person full of a bunch of words, but they got a tiny church, a puny church. That guy's been pastoring 20 years and his church is the same size, 100 people. He doesn't get the right to speak. She, she's pastored the same church for 20 years. You know, she started this church 10 years ago in her house, and it's still in her house. We're not going to let her speak. We judge what people have to say based on the sizes of their church. You know, Eugene Peterson, there's so many good quotes from him. Eugene Peterson did not pastor a mega church, but he understood pastors. And because he wrote and his writing was so powerful, people would listen to him. They'd listen to him because he had powerful writing, not based on the size of the church he pastored. It's interesting. We'd make that allowance. We'd say, no, why do you listen to him? Because he has a mega church? No, we listen to him because he has something to say. Now, he was able to communicate that through books that were published. But I'm here to tell you there are other pastors with something to say, like Eugene Peterson, who maybe aren't published. But they need to be heard. But because they don't exist in the model or the mold of what we think of, leader or a conference speaker should be, they are not given voice. They're not given opportunity to have influence in the denominational setting. And it's harming the church. It harms the church. Representation is such a huge thing. If you don't have proper representation in the room, the people in the room will not care about the needs of the people who aren't represented. You see this all the time in a leadership structure. Let's say uh, if the representation, uh, if your denomination, the leadership is primarily white, primarily wealthy, primarily men, they're going to focus in on white, wealthy men issues. Even if they say, oh, that's not me, I wouldn't do that. They will. They're just going to think about the things that are of interest to them. It's why theologians in Europe who were wealthy and well taken care of, 
their theological issues were all about crises of conscience and about, you know, how do I know if I'm saved or not? Or is righteousness an issue of works or faith? It was all these head things, all these, because they were in their bodies at peace. They could feed themselves. They could clothe themselves. They didn't have to worry about being murdered or raped or harmed or abused by those in power. Now, you find a different theology was formed in Latin America or in South America, where you had extreme poverty and extreme injustices, where the theologians in those areas begin to think less about crises of conscience and more about justice, more about the poor, more about the needy. Which is more important? They're both important. And if you represent everyone in the room, you're going to find a healthier theology. If the poor and the wealthy are allowed to invest their best energy into the formation of theology, you'll have a healthier theology. And it's the same with large churches. If you just have a bunch of large churches making decisions, they're not going to have the heart of a smaller church. I was thinking about, here's just an example, a very nice uh, p a pastor who uh, almost always pastored a large church sent out a letter saying how you could support pastors on pastor appreciation, right? That's good. You know, he sent it out to leadership to say, here's ways that you can support your pastor. But as I read the letter, I realized that the one who was writing the letter was no longer familiar of the economic trauma of pastoring a small church. And I could tell that because in his letter, he was saying, here's ways you can encourage the pastor. You can volunteer more. You can give supportive emails. You can encourage them. It was all about emotional and relational things. And those were all good things. There's nothing wrong with the supports that he was asking people to give their pastor. But if he had been a pastor of a church of 100 his whole life, probably the first thing he would have written is this. If you want to support your pastor, give him or her money on Pastor's Appreciation Month. Just give him a check. Give him some cash. Because he would have understood that for the majority of bivocational pastors, the majority of pastors who are pastoring small churches, financially, they're barely making it. And one of the best ways you can help them is give them enough money so they can pay for health care or dental insurance or they can buy a birthday present or they can actually go on vacation in the summer when everyone else goes on vacation. They can go on one as well. But I could tell from the letter is that this pastor was disconnected from the needs of the smaller churches. And I'm sure the letter was shared with a bunch of other pastors of large churches, and they're like, this, this is great. And yes, it was great, but it was limited in the full perspective. We need representation. And representation should be equal to what the church looks like. And I don't believe that God looks at 80% of the church and says, you're doing it wrong, you need to do it like this 20%. In fact, it's more than that, that 90% of the church and says, ah, you're doing it wrong. I want you to do this like the exception. We need better representation. Now, why do I bring all this up? Well, Doug's just giving sour grapes. Well, a, a couple things. One, if you're pastoring a church, a smaller church, and for some of you, you're, you might be pastoring a church of 400, 500 people, but you still feel like it's a small church that I have to do something more to be important. I, I got to grow this thing to something bigger so then I have a right to speak or that my denomination will notice me, or then I'll be noticed within the region. And it's not like proud, pride things, like you, you, you want to have influence and you realize that because you're a certain size, you're looked down upon. I want to challenge you. Have you bought into this lie? Have you bought into the lie that your ministry doesn't have as much value as the larger churches? Just honestly ask yourself. At some level, 
Have you learned to hate your own expression? Being in a culture that constantly platforms and praises growing larger churches, has this made you hate yourself? Now, I'm using this word strong, but I think it's an important word to use. Do you constantly feel like you're not good enough, that you're not doing it right, that if you just did a better job, the church would do better? Do you have this feeling that you're a subpar pastor? If that's your feeling, I'd like you to repent of that because you're not. You're a dearly loved, chosen servant of God, and no one has the right to judge the fruit of your ministry or the ministry of Christ in you. Our Savior, Jesus, went into whole cities that rejected him, and he didn't say, well, I should have done a better job. I guess I should have had a better leadership development practice. Should have had a better discipleship pathway. No, he said, woe to you, Corazon. You know, woe to you, Bethsaida. Instead of him taking the blame, he said, this is just what ministry is. Sometimes you preach to some people and they don't listen. In some areas, it's hard to grow a church. We see with the Apostle Paul and his travels that some cities welcomed him, others rejected him. The fruit of ministry is sometimes rejection. People walk away sad. You cannot judge the fruit of your ministry based on the size of the church you're serving. Period. And no one else has that right either. I'd like you to stand up straight, to put your shoulders back, to lift up your head and be proud of the work Christ has done through you. I think this is where we got to stand up. In fact, uh, there's people like Carl Vader who uh, writes about small churches, and there's other leaders as well who write about small churches. And, and man, I think we need a movement. We need a movement of pastors just to stand up and politely say, I know you're trying to help us, but enough. I don't want to listen to that megachurch pastor again. I've heard him. In fact, I can find what he has to say. I want you to go out and find men and women of integrity who are pastoring smaller churches that aren't platformed by our culture, and I want you to platform them. I want you to put the extra work in and start having a representation on the stage that represents my brothers and sisters in Christ who are working in the harvest field. I want to see the representation that God loves. It's time for us to no longer bow down to that self-hate culture. That condescending culture. The culture that just makes room for people who reach certain attendance barriers. Oh, uh, they're there. You can enter the room now. You can make the important decisions because you've made enough money or had enough influence by the size of your church. We must repent of that spirit. There's nothing noble in it. There's nothing right in it. And whether it's been intentional or just we happen to wander into it based on the culture around us, we must repent of it and find a better way. We're not going to motivate the church by teaching everyone to hate themselves. I don't know if the church is going to keep declining. I think it might, and it'll have nothing to do with what we do. In fact, ironically, the church growth literature, experts, and movement have grown, and as those things have grown, the church is declining. And the greater the problem becomes, there's more people out there saying they know how to fix it. But we're seeing just from the data that they don't, they don't know how to fix it. And some of the men, and I'm going to say men because I just think of men with this, the men who wrote books on how to do church as a team and how to do this and how to do that, and, and they had these large expressions and they said, everybody can do what we're doing. Some of those pastors have not been able to transition their churches to the next pastor. 
The cult of personality didn't move on to the next pastor, and they had lots of advice and lots of workshops and lots of conferences, but they can't even hand over ministry to the next pastor, yet they're trying to run the rest of the church. Maybe they don't know as much as they thought they knew. Maybe their growth was just some divine, sovereign expression, and we should praise God for it, but not make some sort of model that we hold up as some sort of idol that we all try to follow and worship. To move forward, whether it comes from conferences or leadership, we need to have people represent the church that God sees, not the exception to the rule, not what we think people should be, but they're not. So one, if you yourself are looking down upon yourself based on size, based on numbers, I'd like you to repent of that. You know what I'm saying, that repent of that. It's a good repentance. Turn from that. Let God encourage you in the work that you've been doing. If we are looking down on other churches based on size, and I would say this too, if you're looking down on larger churches based on their size, get to know people, get in relationship, get to know the hearts of people, because I've met pastors who I dearly love in all sized churches, and they're trying hard. And every field is difficult, and every church expression has challenges. If you're in ministry, I don't think many people escape heartache, pain, suffering, difficult times. So we should encourage one another. and We don't have to tear down other expressions to make room for our own. In fact, if you find that, if you find your heart is a lot of anger and bitterness towards other expressions, there might be reason for that, that you've been looked down upon, that you've been judged, that you've been kept out of rooms of leadership and positions of power because of that. But can you in some way hand that to the Lord and ask the Lord to heal you and to give you a place where instead of tearing down others, you just feel good about yourself? And, and it's okay to stand up and say, hey, you know, I know we have a bunch of large churches here uh, speaking, but that's not the full story. And so let me tell you a story as well. Let me tell you about our church. We need to find ways to unite around character and other, other ideas that are harder to measure than just the number of people and how big their offering is. There's so much more I could say on this, but I'm not going to for now. I'd like you to share this with other pastors who are struggling because we need to encourage people. And I think it's going to get tougher, not, not easier as we move ahead. And I think we need to move forward with the confidence that Jesus had after the baptism, right? When Jesus was baptized, he gave up his strength and his power and his authority and he surrendered into the baptismal waters. And he said, I'm not going to do anything based on my own strength. I'm going to do it based on the leading of the Holy Spirit and the favor of the Father. So he came up out of the water after John the Baptist baptized him. And we have the Spirit descends upon him. And the Father says, this is my son, and him I'm well pleased. Before Jesus does anything, before he heals anyone, before he, the big miracles he's known for happen, he just knows that the Father loves him. And we know that. We know that Jesus is not ministering to gain the Father's pleasure. He's not ministering to gain authority. He is ministering because the Father loves him. He is ministering from the pleasure of the Father. The power of the Holy Spirit and the pleasure of the Father. And that should be how we motivate one another. Not that you got to do something more and better and then you'll be pleasing, but that you right now, ministering in this context, you have the Holy Spirit to lead you, and the Holy Spirit has been leading you. And you have the pleasure of the Father, where the Father looks at you and says, I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm pleased with you. Now minister 
as an expression of my pleasure. Do what I've called you to do. Speak to people. Some will listen. Some won't. Invest in the harvest field. Invest in the place I've planted you. And then let me take care of the fruit. You just be faithful and obedient. Let the pleasure of the Father motivate your heart. Let me pray with you. Lord, I just thank you for each person listening. And I pray that this word would go out, that it would be spread, it would be shared, uh, that movements would rise up where we would see the church as you see it. We'd love pastors the way you love them. And our leadership development would begin to reflect the church that you see, that we would not base things on power, on fame, on celebrity, but we would base things based on your spirit and the character of Christ. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you want to know more about me or find more resources, one, subscribe to the show, The Fairly Spiritual Show. You can do that through iTunes and SoundCloud and other places. You can go to uh, my website, fairlyspiritual.org, find past podcasts. And also you can find out how to purchase the book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. That's The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. And it's about my struggles of pastoring a community with my reluctance to be in community. And I think it gives a really solid theology of why we gather and how we can gather in all kinds of different expressions, but how we become more human when we gather together as believers. All right. Love you guys. Make room for the Lord. I'll see you next time. Enough.